1968, a tough time in our country's history. The Vietnam War was raging. Uh, Nixon was elected. Of course, the country was reeling from assassinations. Martin Luther King Jr., Bobby Kennedy. It was this very divisive time, a time of social upheaval. Um, In many ways, the cultural fabric uh, seemed to be in tatters. And in that very fraught year, that fraught moment in history, this little gem of a book was published. Raise your hand if you've read Corduroy. (laughs) Okay, most of you. Uh, I'm reading it now to uh, our kids. My favorite thing is hearing them try to say corduroy. <laughs> That's the, the most entertaining part of it. Um, in, it. In case you haven't read it or you haven't read it recently, corduroy is about this teddy bear who lives in um, a, the toy department of a department store. And day after day, he's described as waiting for someone to take him home. And one day, this little girl comes in and almost does. Uh, almost does take him home. Uh, But it turns out that corduroy is a little too expensive, and he's looking a little worn. And uh, the little girl's mom points out as well that corduroy is missing a button, and so he needs to be repaired. And I don't know much about Don Freeman, the author. I actually tried to research a little bit of maybe what he was going for with this book. I have a feeling that this story is not just about a bear. Uh, The more I read it, it really does strike me as kind of a modern parable about something that most of us have felt. Because like this little bear, Corduroy, we've all experienced times in our life when we wonder about our worth. And we wonder if we are really unconditionally loved, valued. We wonder if we are enough. And you might be living through a season like that right now, where day after day you just struggle and you feel a little bit tattered. You are very aware of your own shortcomings and what you're missing. Like you're standing on a shelf just waiting for someone to come and to speak life to you and, and take you home and accept you. I think we all have moments where we feel those kinds of things. Sometimes we have seasons where we feel that way. Some of you may feel like that's the dominant feeling of your life. But the wonderful truth is that regardless of how you feel, you are loved. You are valuable. You are worth more than you can imagine. And we know this because Jesus, God in the flesh, told us. And he proved it by giving his life for you and me. Last week we started this series, uh, Jesus in His Own Words. Uh, We're going to be looking at these five parables that that Jesus told. He told many more than that, but we've chosen five. Um, And in case you weren't here last week, just a quick definition of a parable. Uh, It's a short story that illustrates a spiritual truth. This is one of the distinctive ways that Jesus taught. He would tell people parables. And we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables today, a short parable that he told that makes very clear how valuable we are in his eyes. So the question that we're going to be answering today, that Jesus is going to answer for us, is this. What am I worth? What am I worth? So if you brought your Bible with you, um, or you want to grab one on the table, uh, turn to Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. I think most of you guys know where Luke is, but there you go. Third book in the New Testament. We're going to start there. Luke 15, 1. says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners 
We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. All right, let's stop there for a second. So these first three verses kind of set the scene for us. Uh, Luke describes that Jesus had kind of two camps of people around him. And not just at this moment when he told this parable. This is true of his ministry as a whole. There were kind of these two groups. There were the tax collectors and sinners, as is described here. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and highlight that group, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Some of you may know that the tax collectors in the first century were hated. They were despised as traitors. The Roman overlords um, of the Jewish people uh, taxed the Jews into oblivion. I mean, they just, the taxes were crushing. And so for you to be a Jewish person and agree to work for the Romans and, and actually take the crushing taxes from people that were keeping them in perpetual poverty, I mean, it was just like the worst thing you could do. So they were absolutely hated, and in many cases we know they were being dishonest and, you know, skimming money off the top and that sort of thing. And so they, they were just outcasts, really, in society. So you have tax collectors and then sinners, um, which is kind of almost presented synonymously here with tax collector. But sinners, when it's um, mentioned like this in the Gospels, usually means, you know, someone who's uh, sinning in some kind of stereotypical, observable kind of way, people who just seem to not even really be interested in God or prioritizing God. Um, so, so this is one group that's around Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners. And the religious establishment of the time really seemed to have no time for these people. But they were flocking in droves to Jesus. The second group is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So go ahead and highlight that. That's the second group of people around Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, the Pharisees came about as a group um, in the couple centuries before Jesus' life. So they weren't around really in the Old Testament period. It was in the period between the Old and New Testament. The Pharisees as a group came to be. And they had a noble pursuit at the beginning. They basically said, hey, you know, God's given us his law, his word. We should take that seriously and really live it out. Every person should. Not just the priests in the temple. Everybody should. We should really follow the letter of the law. And so that's good. I mean, it talks all through the Old Testament, the importance of obeying the Lord and following his commands. And so they embraced that. But inevitably, over time, of course, they begin to notice who's not following as seriously as they are. And by Jesus's time in his ministry, when we see him engaging with the Pharisees, they become very judgmental, very focused on following the letter of the law and really neglecting taking care of people. And this is why they continually have friction with Jesus. The, the experts in the law um, that it talks about here, uh, teachers of the law, sometimes it's translated. Uh, these were people who ran in the same circles as the Pharisees. Some of them were Pharisees. They were, they, you know, were the type of people who'd be copying scriptures. They were just biblical experts, okay? These two groups, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law who were kind of overlapped, their entire lives were oriented around religion, and they disliked Jesus as, as a group. There were exceptions, but mostly they were not a fan of, of what Jesus was about. And so it says in these verses, they muttered about him, which basically means they complained, they gossiped. Um, he's welcoming sinners. Look at this which, by the way, implies that they don't consider themselves to be in that group. You know, Jesus welcomes them. He eats with those people. He shares a table with them. 
Like, how could he do this? I mean, that, that was kind of their attitude. And Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew they misunderstood God's heart. And so he's about to tell them a parable to help them understand how God feels about these sinners they're so easily denouncing. Um, so let's keep reading. The parable of the lost sheep, it's called. Verse 4. Jesus said this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So let's unfold what Jesus um, just said. Again, he's in this mainly rural kind of agricultural society, livestock. Most people owned it. And so he begins, it's a, it's a familiar scene to talk about sheep and shepherds and that kind of stuff. And he begins with a rhetorical question. He says, suppose one of you, you know, had 100 sheep and loses one. You know, wouldn't you leave the 99 in the open country to go after that lost sheep? And I imagine those listening, um, they would be kind of, nodding along like having a hundred sheep was an average size um, for kind of a small farm Um, most farmers at that time or shepherds they would know the individual sheep and they would notice and care if one of them was gone and so jesus is is explaining something fairly familiar he's basically saying look we're all agreed that if you you know that you would go find this lost sheep right and basically everybody listening would have been like yeah of course you go after the lost sheep that was standard practice. So Jesus is kind of drawing them in with some common ground. Like we're all on the same page. This is what you do, right? Yeah. So he continues and he says, and when you find it, you joyfully put it on your shoulders. You go home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors. You know, they say, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And so he's describing the fact that in the world of, that they were living in, if you lose a sheep and you find it, it's a really big deal. And the shepherd goes and finds the sheep and he comes home happy to have found this wanderer, maybe he has friends over for like a barbecue to celebrate, hopefully not serving lamb at that barbecue, or at least not that lamb. But anyway, he celebrates. It's like, this is a really big deal. That sheep was lost and it's found. It was worth going after. And it leads to rejoicing. In fact, there's two words in that parable that have to do with joy. And so I want you to highlight those. It says in verse 5, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And then it says when in verse 6, when he gets back, rejoice with me. It's from the same root of a word, joy and rejoice. So two words there that mean joy. Uh, This is a joyful moment of finding what has been lost. And then Jesus, he's actually technically done with the parable at the end of verse six, and verse seven is his explanation. He gives the commentary to the people listening, and he says, I tell you, he's talking to the Pharisees and and teachers of the law and the sinners, tax collectors, everybody around him. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He's saying it brings God joy when someone who has been far from him comes home. It's a good thing. It's something you should want. And it causes God to rejoice. I would highlight that word. That's, That's the third instance in that parable of a joy-related word. It it causes God to rejoice when this happens. 
And so remember those two groups around Jesus, the sinners and the religious leaders. Jesus is saying, look, there's more joy after that sinner coming after me than from the religious actions of the publicly pious. That's not what he's overjoyed about. And this would surprise the listener. You know, Jesus often did that with his parables. He, draw, he would draw people in with a story that seems familiar, and they think they, you know, what the end of the story might be, and then he reverses it. He surprises the listener. And the reversal and the surprise in this is that the so-called sinners are getting it. And the professionally religious are missing it. That would have been a shocking thing to the hearers. But the truth behind it is that God loves the lost. He loves them. He loves those who are far from him. In, in the same way it's worth the shepherd going after the sheep, it is worth God to come after those who have gone far. He rejoices And actually, so this is the very beginning of Luke 15. If you were to keep reading Luke 15, Jesus piles on two more parables of the same theme. So you have the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and then the kind of crescendos to the parable of the lost son, which we call the prodigal son. All three drive home the idea of joy over finding what has been lost. In fact, some scholars refer to Luke 15 as the lost chapter because the whole thing is these parables about something being lost and being found and the joy that God has over that. Jesus is relentlessly pursuing his beloved. That's the picture in this chapter and in this parable. And and when you keep reading Luke, when you get to uh, chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus comes right out and says what his mission is. And it's this, Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. You know, last week we looked at the parable of the great banquet. It's this amazing scene, you know, Everybody is invited. God wants everybody at his table. He wants his house to be full. The parable of the lost sheep that we just read takes it even a step further. You know, God's not just sitting at his table and he's just waiting on your RSVP. No, he's gone out and he is looking for you. He's proactively coming after us, seeking our rescue. He came to seek and save the lost. That's the picture. And the way he did that was to give his life as a ransom, to die in our place, to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins, and in doing so, removing the barrier between us and him. He gave it all to save us. He gave everything. So back to our question behind this parable, what am I worth? The answer is everything. In God's eyes, we are worth everything. God gave everything for you for me, gave the life of his son to prove just how loved we are, how valuable we are to him. We are his creation. The only thing he made in his image in all of the universe and we are precious to him. But I think we don't live as if this is true or feel as if this is true. So often I, I don't think we fully step into that relationship that we have been offered. Um, And we find ourselves still wondering about our value, feeling like we have to kind of fix ourselves to make ourselves acceptable to God or fix ourselves uh, for others to accept us. Back to our other parable from 1968. How did Corduroy, the bear, react when he was not chosen by the little girl who came in? Uh, When he realized he was missing a button, he went on a mission to fix himself, didn't he? to find his missing button. And when he found what he thought 
was the button, which was a button on a mattress. You know, he just pulled on that thing and struggled. This must be it. And I think we tend to do that as well. We try to fix ourselves. We go on our own little quest, quest to find our missing pieces, to make ourselves whole. And we try it in all kinds of ways that will never deliver. You know, if I just make that certain amount of money, I'll be something. If I have just the right friends, if I meet that person for me, if I wear the right clothes, if I lose this much weight, if I look this way, if I have a certain respect in the community or a job title, if, 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 then I'll be worth something. My friends, what was God willing to pay for you? Everything. He gave everything because in his eyes, you are worth that. He loves you beyond comprehension. You know, uh, maybe, you know, you can remember in your life uh, a time when you were seeking God or maybe when you came to a place of faith for the first time. You know, the amazing thing is when you look at what Scripture says and how Jesus has described it, at whatever point in our life we were seeking after him and placed our faith in him for the first time, he had beat us to the punch. He had already been seeking after us. He was calling us home, calling our name, waiting to rejoice at our homecoming. We are not anonymous faces in the crowd to him. At the end of the book, at the end of Corduroy, uh, the little girl returns to the store. um, And this last scene, as I read it more and more, it just strikes me as this very powerful metaphor for the gospel. So the girl comes back and she introduces herself to him and she says, I'm Lisa. And she essentially says, you're mine. I, I, I want you to be mine and be with me. And I went home and I got all my money and you are worth all of it. You may have been trying to find your own way out of this store, but guess what? I've been searching for you too. And she goes then to the cash register and, and pays the price For Corduroy redeems him, if you will, to bring him home. And she takes him to her house. And Corduroy sees this room that's been prepared for him. And he's never seen it before. And he says, this is home. And I, now that I see it, I feel like I've been hoping for it all along. And there's this little bed that's his size. And Lisa says, I I love this part. She says, I like you just the way you are, but you'll be more comfortable If I fix your button, I'm going to repair what's broken in you. I'm not going to love you more. I'm not making you more lovable by repairing you. I'm restoring you because I love you. My friends, that's what God is saying to us. He, I love you as you are. I made you nothing you could do could make me love you more than I already do. But there is so much more I want for you. There is so much I want to do with your life. There is so much I want to repair and restore in you because I love you. I want to change your life now and I want to be present with you in the joyful times and in the dark times. I want to walk with you through life. I want you to be with me and one day I'm going to bring you home forever to be with me. And in John 14, Jesus essentially says that to his disciples. He says this when they're worried about their future. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back 
and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. (laughs) That's the message of the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus is saying, you are worth everything to me. I've been looking for you, and I am overjoyed to find you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I have prepared a place for you. I want you to be with me. I'm coming after you. And when I find you, I'm bringing you home. And when you see that home, you're going to realize you've been waiting for it your whole life, even if you didn't know it. Jesus is saying, in me, you're going to find rest from your burdens. I'm going to carry you home like that lost sheep. So what are we worth to God? Everything. Who does God want in his house? Everyone. Everyone. 